Let's go to Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 13 this morning, and I've entitled the message, The Seal and the Prayer. We're going to get into the front side of that prayer, but we're not going to actually cover the prayer this morning. We're not going to be able to cover that many verses, but we're going to get into that prayer. But before we do, we, we come to this, this closing section. Remember, we've said this a couple of times, verses 3 through 14 is one big, long, run-on sentence by the Apostle Paul. And now we're coming to the closing of that sentence. And, and along the way, we've, we've seen mention all, well, we've seen mentioned two persons of the Trinity. We've seen God the Father mentioned. We've seen God the Son mentioned. And now we're going to see God the Holy Spirit mentioned in verses 13 and 14. And so we've been learning about our spiritual riches in Christ. We've been learning about our spiritual bank account, if you will. And now we're going to look further at God's manner of securing those blessings. You know, we've been talking all throughout this chapter about that phrase, in Christ, in whom, in him, in Christ. It's just littered in this section. That's how God secured your blessings. But you know what? God went on and did something even more incredible. Not only did he place us in Christ the moment we believed, but he also sealed us with his Holy Spirit. And so as we've used this envelope illustration on our boards this morning, that's a great illustration. In fact, if we closed it up, you wouldn't be able to see what it said, right? So we want you to see that we're in Christ. So that's always ringing through our thinking as we move through this book. But you know what's even more true this morning? It's not only did God choose you in Christ to secure your blessings, but then he, he shut it. He, he, shut the, he shut the letter. Most of us don't like to lick letters anymore, but remember, you used to have to lick letters, right? But he shuts the letter he slaps a seal on it. And you know what? It's God's seal. It's God, the Holy Spirit is the seal. So not only are we chosen in Christ, not only is God's grand plan to put you in Christ, but then he closed all the back doors, all the side doors, no airs getting in, you're in. I love that picture. And that's the seal of the Holy Spirit of Christ and, or the Holy Spirit of God. And so as we're gonna get into verse 13 this morning, we're gonna see a, a very important uh, message. Now, it, interesting, because in verse 12, he starts to say, we who first trusted in Christ, and then you'll notice the switch in pronoun in verse 13, in him, you also trusted. And we talked about that is the, the people who have believed in Christ with Paul before the Ephesians did, and now he's talking specifically to the Ephesians. And this is what he says in verse 13. In him, you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Now, this is a very important passage. This, this one I'm about to say could be a sermon of its own, maybe even a sermon series if someone got long-winded. But it's very important to understand the normative, the normal normative order in which somebody receives the Spirit of God. And I'll tell you why it's important. Because if you go to the book of Acts, you're going you're gonna to get into a history book that's, that's largely descriptive of the transitional nature of the early church, okay? Largely descriptive, not prescriptive, not necessarily telling what you should do, but describing how things happen. And if you've ever read the book of Acts with a, with a careful eye and an observant eye, you're going to notice that, that in the first um, 19 chapters of the book of Acts, you're going to see four different ways that people receive the Holy Spirit. Do you know that? That's, that can be confusing. 
Acts 2, what are, they're, they're in a room praying and the spirit of God comes upon them. You, you move into Acts chapter 8, Philip has moved on to the ministry and the Samaritans. They believe the gospel, but it takes the apostles to come from Jerusalem to lay hands on them to receive the spirit. Then you go to Acts chapter 10 with Cornelius and in the middle of Peter's sermon, he doesn't even get to finish his sermon. The Spirit of God falls on Cornelius and the listeners the moment they believe. And then you get to Acts 19. This is really wild. kind of comes into play with Ephesians because Paul in Ephesus runs into some disciples of John the Baptist. And they have not believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. They believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, saying that John was pointing to this one, so they believed. And then Paul lays hands on them and they receive the Spirit. And so it's like, well, how does a believer in our day receive the Spirit? Paul's dead. Peter's dead, right? The, the room in Jerusalem, we don't know where that, if the room was special that they had to pray in, we don't know where it's at. So how does the believer receive the Spirit? How did Paul understand the normal means by which a believer received the Spirit of God? Well, we have it recorded right here, Ephesians 1.13. By the way, in a what's called a didactic section, a didactic genre portion of the scriptures. In other words, he's teaching us. He's teaching us what this should look like. He's teaching us how this happens. And so in verse 13, we see again, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, in whom having believed, you were sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. So how does it happen? Well, the moment you put your faith in Christ, the moment you believe the gospel, you're sealed with the spirit of God. And so this is the order hearing the gospel, believing the gospel, and then you're sealed with the Spirit. Now, this is very important in our day because for somebody to get saved, this is very important to understand, for somebody to get saved, the gospel has to be shared. We live in a day and age, and and by the way, I am all for having a Christian testimony. I am all for people knowing that I'm a Christian through my life. In fact, uh, we had an incredible uh, opportunity. We were on vacation. We went to a putt-putt golf course and, and, and we just played a round of putt-putt. Now, thankfully, no one threw their club. No one threw their ball. No one got upset. My kids didn't do what sometimes my kids can do and fuss and poke and agitate each other. We had actually had a quiet game of putt-putt golf. My kids were actually cheering each other on. It was like, we were like in heaven. It was like, oh. But a, the guy who owned it came up to us when we were sitting down, counting down the score. And he goes, can I ask you a personal question? I said, Sure. I'm like, where is this going? You know, uh, that's always a dangerous question to say. Yeah, sure, go ahead. He says, are you a Christian? I was like, wow, this is incredible. And in tears, through tears, this man told me, I could just tell by the way you guys interacted with each other. It was pretty awesome too. I said, well, what about you? Are you a Christian? And he said, he said, I am. And I said, and what do you think that means? He says, that Jesus Christ paid it all, that Jesus Christ died for all of my sins and rose again. That's what I believe. And I said, put it, put it there, brother. That's exactly what I believe. And it, was, it was an encouraging moment. It was an encouraging moment. That doesn't happen all the time, right? It's not like we go around life and that happens, but sometimes it does. And that's a good, that's a good outflow of our life. But you know that just living a Christian life, just mowing your neighbor's lawn, just giving them cake, when you have extra cake, inviting them over for a barbecue. Do you know all those things, very good in and of themselves, you know that none of those things will get somebody saved. None of those things will get somebody saved. 
They may love you. You may be their favorite neighbor. They may see that something's different in you, but if we never get the gumption or the ability to share the gospel with them, they're never gonna get saved. Because the gospel is what, according to Romans 1.16? It's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. And see, the gospel's gotta be communicated. Now, whether or not you do it, that's often scary. Let's be honest. That's an often scary thing to do. Whether or not you do it verbally, whether or not you pass along something written, they have to believe the gospel. The gospel has to be the message that they believe in order to get saved. And so you see this very clearly come through. In fact, Romans 10, 17 says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Faith has to come. It has to be attached to an object. It has to be attached to an object that can save. Many people all over the world have faith. The problem is not with their faith. The problem is in their object oftentimes because the church won't save you. Lighting candles won't save you. Giving money won't save you. Praying won't save you. Reading your Bible more won't save you. No amount of good works will ever save you. So you can have faith in those things, but those things will let you down. The only one, the only work that will never let you down is the work that Jesus accomplished for you 2,000 years ago on the cross. That's where our faith needs to be. That is an object. He is an object who can save. In fact, what do saviors do by definition? They save you. Just, just like any other definition we look at, Jesus Christ is a savior because he saves. That's by definition who he is. And so we see this order, hearing the gospel, believing the gospel, being sealed with the gospel. And so this message needs to be communicated. Again, lifestyle's great. I, I think we all need to be ready uh, to, to live a life that glorifies Jesus Christ. That's, I'm not downplaying that at all. But I also think we need to be ready and equipped and available if the time comes to share a message that we are ready to do that. Because that's what saves people. Not thinking you're a great guy or you're a great lady or you're a nice neighbor or you're a nice person or you're a good dad or you're a good mom. That doesn't save anybody. And so it's so valuable each one of us at least to have an equipping so that we know what we would share if given the opportunity and then be aware of opportunities. Do you think God wants people in Newnan, Georgia to trust in Jesus Christ? Yes. Do you think there are people in Newnan, Georgia that have gone to church their whole life and have never heard a clear gospel presented in their life? Yes. Don't, don't just assume because people go to church that they know what the gospel is. There's so much confusion out there. And you may say, I've got nothing to offer. Can you say this sentence? If you can say this sentence, Jesus Christ died for your sins and rose again. That's the gospel. That's the power of God to salvation. That is letting a tiger out of its cage. Can you let the tiger out of his cage? <laughs> we can do that. It's a simple message. It's not a condemning message. It's a hopeful message. It is God saying he doesn't want anybody to go to hell. He wants everybody to go to heaven. And he provided a solution so that you wouldn't have to go to hell. That's good news. There's nothing wrong with sharing that message. Yes, people will get offended. But what are they getting offended about? It's because they want to get there their own way, on their own terms, on their own dime. And God says, I won't accept any of that. I accept my son as evidenced by me raising him from the dead. It's a simple message, but we've got to share it. It's got to be communicated in order to be believed. In verse 13, we'll go back to verse 13. 
Because it says, having believed. And and what we're going to see in verse 13 is that faith is the only prerequisite to being sealed by the Spirit of God. Not an ongoing life of faithfulness, not a promise to quit sinning, all these things that many people try to introduce at this point. We're just looking at verse 13, the one prerequisite was believing. And, and, you know, one of the things that we see from the word is probably better said upon believing. So it's not believing and then at some point in the future, you know, nebulous, somewhere out there that the spirit will eventually seal you. No, it's like the moment you believe, you're sealed. That's what verse 13 is saying. And, you know, when we talk about being sealed, we're talking about closing it up. We're talking about making it fast or secure with the signet. You know, it's kind of cool. My, my mom has, is, has actually got wax that she puts on letters to our kids during Christmas. They love it because we don't, we, don't, we don't do seals anymore, you know. What's my seal when I'm, when I'm paying the, the mortgage? It, it's not a wax deal with my signet, right? It's like scotch tape, you know. I, put, I throw some scotch tape on there. But back in these days, this was a wax seal with the signet. It indicated uh, a number of things. In fact, it was uh, done like this to books, scrolls, letters, okay? And so this was the idea of it closing it up and securing it. One of the cool things, it's in the passive voice. That means that you don't seal yourself. Man, let me say that again. You don't seal yourself. This is, this is another benefit of God placing you in Christ. He seals you. You don't do it to yourself. It's done to you. When? The moment you believe. That's when you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. Pretty incredible. Additionally, the heiress tense indicates that the sealing's done. It's a finished transaction. It's not like God is still dripping the wax on you and being like, I don't know. Let me me watch this cat a little bit longer before I, I throw my signet on here. That's not it at all. It means it's done. The moment you believe, you're sealed. And you see how God places you in Christ and he secures you in Christ in so many ways we can't even. And and now you can see why Paul is out of breath when he gets to verse 14. I mean, he's just exploding with excitement about what God has done in Jesus Christ. Now, a few uses of seals in Paul's day should be noted here. I think because we don't use this, it's gonna aid us in understanding the visual aid that he's using. Obviously, his audience would have understood all of this. But for us, it's kind of, uh, removed here. And by the way, isn't it great that the Spirit of God is the one sealing you? I still to this day have a hard time sealing freezer bags, right? I mean, if it's up to you, if it's up to me, we'd be in big trouble. We'd be in big trouble, but the, but the Spirit of God knows how to seal you. And that's exactly what we're talking about. Here's one of the uses. We've already talked about this, but it was a sealing of a package. And what it did is it secured the package. It validated the contents of the letter or package. To illustrate this, a sergeant is, is managing a group of soldiers and he's waiting word from his general. The general sends his instructions and he's got it sealed with the general's signet. And so when the sergeant receives that from the messenger, he looks at it, the seal has not been tampered with. He recognizes it's the seal of the general. He pops it open, he reads the letter, and then he acts on what he reads because he knows it's from the general. But same scenario. Let's say he gets the letter. Let's say he doesn't recognize the general's signet. Let's say the seal's been broken and tried to, you know, it's like the kid that says, I, I didn't eat, you know, chocolate chip cookies and they got, you know, chocolate on their face. You know, it's like, it's not good. So they tried to put the seal back and then he goes inside to read it and there's words crossed out, things erased. 
what would he think about the letter? He said, I can't trust this. The, the contents have been violated. I don't know what the original message was. I, didn't, I don't know who's had their hands on this. And so you see the importance of a seal in that way. We see that the seal identified the contents. Again, it came from someone specific. You could recognize their signet ring. And then putting a seal on an object indicated ownership of that object. In other words, you know, it's kind of like what we do in presidential um, commercials, ads in this day. You know, I'm so-and-so and I approve this message. You know, it's kind of like they, they own the message that was in there. And so by putting their signet on it, they, own, they said, I own this message in here. And so now how does that work for the believer in terms of just using some of those practical uses of a seal in Paul's day? Well, it indicates a couple of things. It indicates, number one, that God owns the believer, that, that we belong to God. We are his, we've seen earlier, we're not only his children born into his family, but we're also what? Adopted as sons. We are, we've got a full inheritance. So we are owned by God. And then it also indicates the security and permanence for the believer. In other words, we are secure. And we're gonna see that even, I, I, I wanna talk about it now, but I'm gonna wait till verse 14 because you can see it even clearer there. But you can, you can see from the seal that we're, the contents are secure. The contents are secure. And how do we know it's permanent? How is the believer sealed? What is the seal? And I think that's a great question. How does it happen? What is the believer sealed with? We know the spirit of God does the sealing, but you know what? If you go back to verse 13, you know what else you can see? You can see that what we're sealed with is actually a who. We're not sealed with a what, actually. (laughs) We're sealed with a who. And that who is the spirit of God. Go back and read with me, verse 13. In whom, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So not only does the Holy Spirit seal you, but he seals you with himself. You see, um, it, it, is, it is so hard to describe this, and, I, and you'll see what I'm talking about. Your God is a personal God. He, he doesn't just do things somewhere out here disconnected from him. Everything that he does with the believer is, is directly connected with you. you. We're gonna see throughout the book of Ephesians, you are in union with Jesus Christ. As you sit here this morning, whether you realize it or not, you are one with Jesus Christ. You have all the resources that the life of Jesus Christ possesses and avails to you. They are yours as you sit here this morning because of the position that God puts you in. And notice this, now he's going to seal us. He doesn't just slap a piece of wax on you in Christ. The spirit of God himself is your seal. Again, very personal. And we're going to see here that not only is he guarding the outside, but he's guarding the inside. That's what we're going to see in verse 14. It's just incredible the way God does this. Now, he is the seal himself. Uh, Additionally, this seal is a permanent seal. Even when a believer sins or lives contrary to the word of God, and you say, how do I know that? Is, am I just driving my theology there? Well, go to Ephesians 4.30, verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. By the way, every time you see a command in the New Testament, you should realize that you're capable of the opposite. If he says that, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, what are you capable of doing? Grieving the Holy Spirit of God. I mean, that's just kind of logic, right? I mean, this is how this works. Check this out though. This would have been a perfect time to say, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God or you're gonna lose him. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God or you're gonna go to hell. 
do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God or I'm gonna make you pay that penalty for your sins. Is that what he says? No, in fact, look what he goes on to say. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom, again, notice that personal connection, you were sealed for when? The day of redemption. Kind of what I see there is the Holy Spirit's gonna get you to the finish line. He's gonna get you to the finish line until what? Well, that's what we're gonna look at here in verse 14 when we get there, but we'll, we'll kind of save that for there. First Thessalonians 5.19 says, don't quench the spirit. Again, what does that imply? That through your behavior and through your choices and through your presentation of sin, you can quench the spirit of God indwelling you. So, so, so clearly a believer can live contrary to the word of God. It's not that we encourage it. We don't want to see that for anybody because you're out of fellowship. Sin produces death, death-like exists. I mean, it's not good for anybody to be out of fellowship with the Lord, any believer. And so we're not encouraging that, but it is a possibility is what we're saying. It doesn't mean you lose the seal. It doesn't mean the seal gets removed. That's the point of discussing that. So how did he do this? God did it through the spirit of God, but how did he seal you? What was the mechanism? And I think it goes back to our spirit baptism found in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, which says we are all baptized by one spirit into one body. All of this coming together at this point where we are placed in Christ, we are identified with Christ, we're safe and secure in Christ, and then the spirit of God shut the back door on it and you're sealed in Christ. All of these things come together at that point. Now, one of the things they always tell you in, in preaching class is don't mix metaphors. Don't mix illustrations, right? You know, don't, don't start talking about a turnip and finish talking about a dog. You know, I mean, it's just, you just don't mix these kind of things. It confuses people. Well, Paul wasn't able to attend Dallas Seminary, I guess, because he, he actually mixes metaphors here. And he does it, I think, for a reason, because what he's going to do is he's talking about a seal representing this outward protection And now he's going to speak about a deposit providing inward guarantee. He's going to take a a seal on a letter, and now he's going to talk about a deposit on a purchase. And you say, don't mix metaphors, Paul. Don't mix illustrations. You know what? I think he's okay doing that here. I think he's totally okay here. So we move into verse 14, which reads this. Who, speaking of the Spirit of God still, is the guarantee of our inheritance until... The, purchase, uh, the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. And so we see that, that phrase, to the praise of his glory, for the third time in this section. Remember, it kind of separates our sections, talking about God the Father, God the Son, and now God the Holy Spirit, that last use of that phrase here in this, in this section. But what we find out from this verse is not only the Holy Spirit, our seal, but he is right now, presently, the guarantee of our inheritance. And it's not just the word guarantee. Now, that's, that's kind of a cool word in and of itself. And this where it derived from was with this word right here. But it meant this, a down payment or earnest money. Now, those of you that have ever bought a house, you know what earnest money is. You, you know exactly what earnest money is. But for those that haven't, it is the part of the price that's paid beforehand to confirm and affirm your intention to finalize the deal. So you, you have a total price on the house. It's $100,000, let's say. You know, lots of good wishing there in Noonan for that one. $100,000 for a house. And maybe you, you cut a check for $2,000. Now, $2,000 doesn't buy the house, 
But what 2000 does is it lets the seller know that you are serious and you intend to close and provide the final amount. And guess what happens with earnest money? If you pay it, and let's say the closing is 30 days out, but in day 20, you decide, oh man, I don't want to live there after all. Can you say, let me have my, I, I'm, going to, I'm going to break the contract and have my earnest money back. What happens? No, you lose it. You lose it. It goes into the final price, right? This is the word used here, the Holy Spirit of God. There, there is something coming in the future that God is going to finalize a transaction. But in the meantime, the Spirit of God is given to the believer, indwelling the believer until that final transaction is complete. And so it begs the question, what is the final transaction? Well, before we talk about that, it, it just gives this, this truth, this thought should give the believer great assurance. Great confidence that if the Spirit of God is the earnest payment by God the Father in terms of expressing his intention to finalize the deal one day, you know what that means? That means he could never send you to hell because he wouldn't get the Holy Spirit back. Now, I know that's kind of an abstract argument, but you can see the point. And this is why I think Paul uses the wording. I think he uses the illustration, gives us that visual aid to understand that a little bit better. So what exactly is our inheritance here? Let's go back to verse 14. <clears throat> says the spirit of God, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. And then notice, notice this phrase, the guarantee of our inheritance until. So at some point, God's gonna finalize this transaction at some point in the future. So he says he's the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Again, notice in verse seven, what did he say? In verse seven, he said, in Christ, in him, we have redemption right now. We have it, we possess it. Now he's talking about a future redemption. Like, what is he talking about? I thought we had redemption. What's what's this future redemption he's talking about here? Can you see the, the difference there? There's a different emphasis here. And in verse seven, we saw that the redemption spoken of was the the price for sin's penalty, completely paid. That's why the very next phrase in verse seven says, um, through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, ties that redemption to our forgiveness of sins. What's he talking about here? What What is the Holy Spirit, an earnest payment that will one day be finalized? Well, we have to go to another passage here uh, to really flesh this out. But turn with me to Romans chapter eight, verse 23. Romans chapter eight, verse 23. What we're gonna see here is that Paul, he's gonna tie together all the following. The things that we have in verse 14, he's gonna tie together in Romans eight twenty-three. He's gonna tie together these things. I want you to look for it as we read through. The indwelling Holy Spirit, our glorified bodies, which I believe is that, redemption that he's talking about. That purchased possession is our bodies. And so our glorified bodies is going to be that final payment. And then he talks about our inheritance. How does he talk about it? Romans 8, 23, it's through the word adoption. And then he's also going to include redemption here. Okay. So he ties this all together. Romans 8, 23 says this, not only that, but we also have the first fruits of the spirit. Notice that. What does first fruits indicate in the Old Testament? There's more to come. First fruits is I give you the very first thing out of my production, indicating that there's more to come. So what's more to come? We've got the first fruits of the spirit. 
We've been sealed with the Spirit. The Spirit is our earnest or guaranteed payment. Um, it says we have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, which has to do with our inheritance. Notice what it is, the redemption of our body. That's what I believe he's talking about here back in Ephesians chapter one, verse 14. He is the guarantee of what? Your future glorification, if I can put it simply. Do you know the exciting thing about the salvation God has promised is that he didn't just save you from your sins. You know, that is a glorious truth that we'll sing about for eternity. I mean, that, that is awesome. But you know, it didn't stop there. It's, it's, and I've said this before, but it's like the infomercial we see on TV, but wait, there's more, but wait, there's more, but wait, there's more. He didn't just save you from the penalty of your sin. He wants to save you and he put everything in place in your daily life to be saved from the power of sin. And guess what? One day guaranteed as evidenced by the indwelling Holy Spirit, you will be saved from the very presence of sin and your new glorified body. And you know what? Those of you that woke up with aches and creaks and pains and disease and sickness in your body, one day you won't have those ever again. Amen. And the young people are like, what? Your body actually aches? Yes. I'm giving personal testimony as I get into my mid-40s that that happens. But one day, we're going to have a new glorified body. It's going to be completely delivered from the presence of sin. And you know why you can know that that's going to happen? Is it because you can see the future? No, you can see on the basis of the word of God, you can believe it. Because the spirit of God is that earnest payment. One day God's going to complete that transaction. Praise God, it's coming. It's guaranteed. And that's what I love about the word of God. One of the things we see about this word redemption is it means to let go free for a ransom. In other words, you... You make a payment and you let uh, what you bought go free. And in this case, what's going to go free, what's going to be let go is your human body. And God is going to replace it with a glorified body. And you know when that's going to happen? First Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18 describes that it's going to happen at the rapture of the church. That's when you're going to get it, that glorified body. Either you die before that day and you get to go first. That's, that's really kind of the Lord. He those of, those of our loved ones who have died before us in Christ are going to go first. I remember I had a, um, I get through this. Um, I had a friend tell me when my dad passed away, he said, you're, now you're going to be holding on to his heels in the rapture. In other words, he's going before you. I love that image to think because those who are alive and remain go after them and they'll be caught up in the clouds together with them and will always be with the Lord. That's what 1 Thessalonians 4 talks about. So, Praise God um, for his full salvation. <laughs> he doesn't just start a project and not finish it. He does it all and he does it complete. And you know, this is why the spirit of God is going to indwell believers until the day of redemption, until the day that they get their glorified bodies, because then they no, need, no longer need deliverance from sin on that day. And that's why he's, he's there as an earnest until that day. And that's what his presence guarantees. Now, one of the things we're going to see as we transition into verses 15 and 16, this is crazy. It's going to make all the English grammar police go nuts because in verse 15, Paul starts another long run-on sentence that lasts, lasts all the way through verse 23. So, so basically Ephesians 1, you can have fun with your kids. Like, hey, I just want you to memorize the Bible. Just three sentences. That's it. Just three sentences. And they can, you can get them to memorize the whole chapter of Ephesians 1. 
So it's got one sentence at the beginning, one sentence from 3 to 14, one sentence from 15 to 23. And so Paul is just as excited about what he's about to say as he has been. And the reason for that is this. He wants us to enjoy our blessings. That's what he's going to pray. That's the, that's the gist of what he's going to pray. You've got all these things, but now you need, you and I need divine illumination, divine encouragement on a day-to-day basis to actually take advantage of what we already possess, to, to begin to walk in the truth of what is true of us. And I think I, uh, I mentioned this in the introduction, but I stole this from a good uh, a friend of mine. And, and he titled this next section, how do you pray for someone who has everything already? How do you pray for someone who already has everything? Well, this is how you pray for them. You pray that they would possess their possessions. You pray that they would start possessing what is already theirs. We pray, you pray that they would start letting this flow through their life on a day-to-day basis, on Monday afternoon, on Tuesday morning, on Wednesday evening, on Saturday morning, when they need the resources of Jesus Christ in their life to meet that difficult person in their life, to meet that difficult circumstance in their life, to intercede and to come into play in their marriage so that they can love their wives as Christ loved the church and so that women can honor and respect their husbands. So you know what to do with your children, whether it's potty training or teaching them how to drive, everything, or teaching them how to live life as an adult. I mean, all of those things in between, you and I need the resources that God has provided for us in Jesus Christ. And we need them to come to the surface more consistently. That's, uh, amen, right? I mean, if you, look at, if you look at your life, and you look at even your last week, and the things that you did, that you wish you had back, the things that you said that you wish you could have caught the words in the air. Don't you wish at that moment you would have realized and recognized and rested upon and utilized the resources you possess in Jesus Christ? Don't you wish that you could go back in that moment and take advantage of it? This is what Paul is praying for the Ephesian believers. This is what he's praying for us. This is illustrated uh, just incredible. This is one of the most incredible stories. Uh, that's a terrible intro to a story because if you don't like it now, you're going to... Anyways, it is one of the most incredible stories I've ever heard. If you've ever heard of William Randolph Hearst, very famous journalist from yesteryear in the early 1900s, 1950s, billionaire, or maybe millionaire, but you know, inflation, he'd be a billionaire now. Very rich, made his money on what's called yellow journalism. If you don't know what yellow journalism is, just... You know, watch CNN, watch uh, MSNBC, watch any of the news outlets, right? What it is, is you, you, you would not be real interested in all the facts. You just were sensational with your titles to get people to buy your subscription. He kind of was the father of that in, in many ways. I'm sure it went on before, but he was kind of known as the father. Very wealthy man. One of the things that he really loved to do with his wealth is to buy rare artwork, Okay. In fact, it's estimated at one time in his life, he owned 25% or over 25% of the entire world's rare artwork in existence. This one man owned 25%. In fact, he built a mansion in California. He tried to put the artwork in his house. He ran out of space. He had so much artwork. So he built a storage facility to house the remaining artwork. And then that storage facility ran out of space and he built another storage facility and so on and so on until he had six or seven different storage facilities packed, crammed, full of expensive, rare artwork. 
One day he was reading an article from overseas and he read about this rare painting and he said, I gotta have this painting. I gotta have this. He took the article, he gave it to one of his staff members. He says, I don't care what it costs. Go to Europe, go to Africa, go to India. I I don't care where you gotta go. Go get me this painting, go find it. Staff member flew around the world for months, following up leads, trying to track down this rare piece of artwork. And finally, he, he, I don't know if he calls back or he telegrammed back. He says, you know, sir, I found the piece of artwork. And her said, well, get it and bring it back. And he says, I found it in one of your warehouses. I said, you already own it. And, you know, for many believers, that's exactly what our blessings and spiritual blessings are like in Christ. We, we go out here, we go out searching, we'll read this book, we'll listen to this, we'll buy this, we'll do this. And it's like, you already have them. You, you possess them. You possess the blessing that you're searching for and going all over the world for, you've got it. How many of you had said, Lord, I just, I do not want this besetting sin to keep besetting me. I don't want to commit that sin anymore, Lord. I want to give that up, Lord. I I promise this time I'm serious. Just do whatever it takes. If I got to read a book, if I've got to go to India, if I got to go to Europe, whatever I got to do, Lord, I'll do it. And I think God is looking at you and saying, you got what you need. I've already made provision for you to be delivered from sin's power. I took you into death with my son to free you from sin's power. And all you have to do is take advantage of it by faith. It's all there for each one of us. And so it leads us into this new section of prayer. And he starts in verse 15 saying this, Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. And this word, therefore, that we see here, that's a, that's a great Bible study word because it kind of indicates what the author's thinking and where he's coming from. But it's actually not our typical Greek word used here uh, that's translated therefore. It's oftentimes translated for this reason. For, for what reason? Well, based on all the spiritual riches believers possess and then some things that he's going to now pray and ask for them. There's a reason that Paul is praying now. He wants them to actually in practice enjoy the possessions that they possess. This is like having millions of the bank and not knowing how to withdraw on the account. This is like having millions of the bank and not having your PIN number. Isn't it great, by the way, that banks will let you reset your password from time to time? When we have like 4 million passwords in our life right now, it's like, okay, which one did I use for this? I mean, imagine if you had millions in your bank account and you forgot your password and you couldn't get access to it. And yeah, that's exactly what many believers are doing. So he's saying for this reason, he wants them to enjoy what they already possess in Christ. He says, after I heard of, notice that he is now, he's been talking about God. Now he's subtly bringing his listeners in and he's gonna describe their response, what he's been hearing about them. Remember, Paul has been away from Ephesus now about five years because he got arrested. He spent two years in Caesarea. Now he's probably been about two years in Rome and there's some time in between. So about four to five years, he's been away from this church that he planted and taught. And so he's hearing about a couple of things here, a couple of their responses. And I want you to notice the order that he puts them in because this is gonna be very important. The very first thing he hears about is their faith in the Lord Jesus. 
And somehow Paul had heard about their ongoing faith. People were visiting him from Asia. So he'd probably heard about how the Ephesian believers were going and doing. And so he, he had personally led these people to the Lord. So he's not talking about how they responded to the gospel. He already knew that. In fact, he was there for that, right? He's talking about how they're walking by faith. He's talking about how they're going on with the Lord in their walk of daily faith. And you know what? That's exactly how believers are designed to live their Christian life. We see it in Romans 1.17. It says, the just, the ones who have been declared righteous shall do what? Live by faith. Galatians 2.20 says, the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is the design of the believer in Jesus Christ. This is how it's supposed to work. We don't have time, but let me just, if you want to jot down a reference, 1 Thessalonians 3, verses 1 through 10. 1 Thessalonians 3, verses 1 through 10. And what you're going to notice is, if you, if you recall, in Thessalonica, Paul was ran out of town on a rail after three Sabbaths. That means he was there for roughly three weeks. He planted this church, taught this church, and they got ran out of Dodge. They chased him down um, to Berea and chased him out of there and et cetera, et cetera. And this is after he'd been beaten in Philippi, of all, all things. So he wasn't having a very good human streak, but there are a lot of people responding to the gospel. So he gets driven out of Thessalonica. He's worried about the new believers there because of the persecution they would face. And he sends Timothy back. It's really fascinating. First Thessalonians 3, you can kind of check this on yourself. Verses one through 10, he uses the word faith five times. He sends Timothy back specifically to find out about their faith. He's concerned about their faith. He's not concerned about the resources they possess in Christ. He knows what they got. He knows they can handle any situation that they're gonna face. He wants to know are they gonna trust in those resources. So he's concerned about their faith. He's interested in their faith. He's interested in what's going on between the ears and in the heart. Are they responding to the word of God or not? Because you know what? If somebody is walking by faith, guess what they can, they can do? They can be fed truth. Because guess what? They're gonna latch on to more. They're gonna latch on to more. They're gonna latch on to more. Have you ever seen a baby that's nursing? It's like, you know, their mouth is wide open. They're swinging their head back and forth. I mean, they're, they're going absolutely nuts. And this is why Peter says, desire the pure milk of the word like a newborn baby. In other words, these believers had their mouths open. And this is why Paul is excited. Now he just says, oh man, let me just put food in there. Let me just, let me push some food in there. Let me push, push some truth into there because they're gonna bite down and take it. They're responding by faith. He's excited about this. In fact, he's motivated to pray for them, to give thanks for them as a result of this. And you know, for believers who are walking by faith and taking advantage of the resources they have in Jesus Christ, this is the only way they can be delivered from sin's power. It's the only way that they can live in an acceptable way to the Lord, that, that they would bear acceptable fruit. It's the only way. Walking by faith, walking by means of the Spirit. You know, and, and, and let's not confuse morality with spirituality. You, you know those two things are not the same. They're not the same. Spirituality is a source word that produces acceptable morality. But you know you could live your entire Christian life walking by means of your flesh and your own strength, and you can be a very moral person, a great neighbor. Maybe you even rise to the level of a deacon or an elder in a church. Maybe you're even a pastor, a missionary. But if you're living life that way, you're gonna be sorely surprised at the beam of seat judgment of Christ. 
We're not designed to crank out our own morality. We are designed to abide in Jesus Christ by faith, to walk by faith in every moment, every situation, not looking at my list of rules of who I want to be, but taking the spirit of God by the hand and walking with them. Have you ever walked holding somebody's hand? It's easy. It's easy. It's not difficult. Difficult is if you're walking with someone and they're like, you know, and they treat you like a dog. No, get right there. No, slide over two inches. No, get up, speed up. You know, keep your left foot in front of you. I mean, that's what living life by list and rules and methods is. That's not how the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God wants to take you by the hand and lead you. The question is, will you lock in on the list or will you take this, the hand of the Spirit of God? That's it. That's walking by faith. It's very easy in that sense. And, and you know what? By the way, this is key for the very next thing that Paul observed. This is what we're going to see. The second response indicates that they are walking by faith and that the Spirit of God is controlling them. And that is this. They have love for all the saints. Now, this type of love, if you look at the, the word in the Greek, it's agape. It's the same love that's produced by the Spirit of God uh, under the label, the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.22. This means that you can't produce this love. You can be a loving person. You could be a merciful person. You could be a a person that's gone to church all your life. You could be a very patient person, but you don't produce agape, period. You don't produce it. You can't. It's a fruit of John. It's a fruit of the Spirit. The Spirit of God is what produces love. And so when Paul says, I have heard of your agape love for all the saints, you know what essence he's saying? I'm seeing a manifestation of the Spirit of God in your life. I'm I'm seeing it. I'm hearing about it. The Spirit of God is doing something special for you, and I'm excited about that. I'm motivated to pray for you because I hear about this, and I just, I I want you to have more. I want you to have more. I want you to keep going on this path. It's just really fascinating. And by the way, there's a key word used here that indicates that this is a Spirit-filled love. And you know what it is? It's the use of the word all. (laughs) Look at it. It says, your love for all the saints, not just the ones I like, not the, just the ones that I share a hobby with, not just the ones that look like me, smell like me, talk like me, drive cars like me. No, what's it say? It says all the saints. I mean, even the ones that irritate you and bother you, yeah? You mean even the ones that are obnoxious and aggressive and put their foot in their mouth and try to put their foot in your mouth? Yep. Those, those saints too, all those saints. And if you don't realize that you can find that in the church of Jesus Christ, you haven't been in the church of Jesus Christ long enough. Just wait, you'll see. <laughs> this, you need divine resources to love all the saints. It's like an old quote used to say, to live above with saints we love, oh, that will be glory. But to live below with saints we know, well, that's a different story. And you know, many of us can say amen, but don't say amen too loud on that. I think we can relate to that. As also another church father said, if it, he said, the church is a lot like Noah's Ark. He said, if it weren't for the judgment on the outside, you could never stand the smell on the inside. To love all the saints, you need the spirit of God. You need the resources that you possess in Jesus Christ. And let's look at this last verse, verse 16. When he says he, he doesn't cease, it means he doesn't willingly stop praying for them. It, it, the idea is that they come on his mind and, he, and they come on his mind a lot. He's really excited about what God is doing in Ephesus. And this is why he gives thanks for them. 
Again, his thankfulness is not based on a single event. It's based on a daily course of life. The fact that they're responding to the Lord by faith, he's excited. So he wants to give them more meat to bite down to. Their mouth is open, so to speak. And then finally, he says he makes mention of them in his prayers. And so not only for what they've been doing in verse 15, which we just looked at, but what he wants them to go on doing, which will start next week, verses 17 and following. And so next week, we're gonna look exactly at what Paul prayed for them. And again, this is the prayer for someone who already has everything. So I hope you can join us next week. Let's close there with the word of prayer. Lord, I thank you for your word, and I pray that you would minister it to each, each listener and hear this morning in whatever way you see fit. And we trust you to do that. We desire in our thinking this week to have a high view of Jesus Christ and what he accomplished for us and the resources he provides to us and that we would be more consistent in taking advantage of those as believers. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.